0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dafren Johan. Malaysia is highly polarized. The results of G15 told us that much. But just how polarized are we, especially across racial and religious lines? Dr Bridget Welch, who's a political scientist and an honorary research associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia, recently wrote a seven-part series for Malaysia Kini, breaking down ethnic voting patterns for G15. I recommend everyone read those articles. So in this episode, we are going to be unpacking Dr Bridget's findings to get a general understanding of where we are politically today. Welcome to the show, Bridget. Good to have you back.
1: Always great to be here.
0: Bridget, we know that Malaysia is polarised across racial and religious lines. But you point out in your series that ethnicity as a key factor of voting has become far more pronounced today compared to previous elections. Whether you look at GE14 or GE13, GE15, it is far worse. Could you expand on this a little bit for me?
1: So I think there are... um two dimensions to looking at this. Mm -hmm. First is, of course, to look at the data and the results, which Mm -hmm. the series in in malaysia Kini does look at, which which points out that we see, you know, very different, strong differences in voting patterns along ethnic lines. Uh, Those those patterns and differences are, are particularly acute among Chinese and Indians that have a more polarized perspective and vote in one particular way. But we also see some of that polarization also taking place within the Malay community, but not to the same degree because the Malay community is much more split. See, the data shows uh, that non-Malays are voting one way and Malays are voting another way. And that is something that is part of the polarization process. The second aspect of this is that you know, is how much ethnicity is actually, it helps us understand why people vote this way. All mm-hmm. right. So Ethnicity is in some way a middle variable, a middle dynamic, right? Because there are things about ethnicity that that need to be explored, which I'll come back to in a minute. But what we see here is that um, as we compare ethnicity to, say, class or to issues associated with generational differences, the ethnic factor has more explanatory value. And the reason for that is because identity politics has been the driver in the campaign. It's been the way people have been mobilized. And this has happened and since 2018, and when the first Pakatan Harapan government came in, and then what we saw was this kind of perception that this was a, about Malay displacement. And then we had the mobilization around the Malay community uh, among different parties, allying and then, of course, splitting, but allying again together um, in order to be able to sort of make this a kind of a, a Chinese Malay or a Malay non Malay dynamic. Uh, but The underlying drivers of ethnicity have to do with the dynamics in the communities in terms of, you know, how they get their information, what their social networks are. And so ethnicity is an important kind of social variable of which people are socialized into particular perspectives. And I think what we don't know and we don't do enough research on is how to understand how, why, what are the factors that are shaping people's ethnic identity and how this in turn is, is partly mobilized. Um, uh, We know how it's mobilized, but we don't necessarily know what are the factors before that. So, for example, social networks are very important uh, in this area. So it's not just about race. It's about how race is actually socialized politically and how that is used by politicians in particular ways. And with with the dynamic of identity politics being so pronounced, the implication means that we have a much more ethnically polarized situation.
0: Bridget, I'm wondering if one of the reasons um, for the polarisation and why it has intensified over the past few years, um, it's also because um, for many years, um, even if you want to look at from 1998 to 2008 or from 2008 to 2018 and and beyond, uh, to 2018, the opposition bloc were united in defeating the old corrupt regime. They were all united in taking down Barisan National, but they were not united ideologically. So when the old power finally fell in 2018, it left a sort of void in which many different factions are competing to fill. Um, How do you see that?
1: I think it has less to do with coalitions and and the divisions and Mm -hmm. more the way that the politicians feel that this is viable for them to stay in power or to basically to get into power. And keep in mind that the current crop of Malaysian leaders are very much shaped by the 1969 racial riots and the politics of the 70s, right, where the NEP policies and others. And so the way they see the world is along racial lines. You know, mm-hmm. Mahathir keeps keeps talking about the issues of the Malays, And to a certain degree, Anwar Ibrahim also similarly has this, that particular paradigm very much uh, entrenched. Mm-hmm. But what we see at the same time in the contemporary environment is that ethnic politics and ethnic identity is being reformulated in different ways and so after 2018 i would argue that we have seen a situation of a kind of neo-malay ethno-religious ethno-nationalist ideology and uh, and this has emerged uh, from a combination of factors one is where the religious component is very pronounced Mm -hmm. and so it's all it's about being muslim or non-muslim as well as the sense of uh, of Of displacement of Malay political power uh, in the contemporary environment, combined with this idea that the nation is perceived as being a Malay nation as opposed to a Malaysian nation. And so these different ideological elements have emerged in the political rhetoric since 2018, but particularly were very salient in the election last year.
0: Before we go through some of your findings of of the results, I want to get a better understanding of voter turnout. Here's what we do know. Voter turnout at 70-plus percent of the entire adult population is honestly really high when we compare to global standards, when we compare to even the most mature democracies around the world. Yes, the percentage dropped in Malaysia when we compare GE14 to GE15. But in GE14, we're looking at the percentage of turnout based on those who actually registered, whereas now the entire adult population is an registered voter automatically. That's it. After GE15, the likes of past Chief Hadi Awang said that the reason they are not in government right now is because of low voter turnout among the Malays. Is that true though? What can you tell me about who voted and who didn't this GE15?
1: So I think that you know when we stack Malaysia against other countries in the world, you know Malaysians participate in very high numbers, and they do so over very difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. In that they don't have a decent postal voting system, they don't have a remote voting system. They get in their cars, they get on the planes. So, uh, you know they became you know they go back to the kampungs. It is a tremendous um, uh, you know energy and, and commitment that I think Malaysians have towards uh, the electoral process that we don't see in large parts of the world, especially in the West, mm-hmm. where we have a lot less voter turnout. And we even see, we compare Malaysia to Indonesia, turnout is high. So ethnicity is one lens to understand the kind of the voters, right? And it's a dominant one because that's how people want to see each other from the perspective of the politicians. It, in this context of um, uh, of looking at the voting patterns, uh, ethnicity helps us understand things. So what we do see are three important trends. Mm-hmm. First of all, on the peninsula, uh, generally, Malaysian Malays voted high, the highest among all the different communities. So what Hadi Awang, uh, one of these leaders who still sees the world through racialized lenses um, that I mentioned just now, what he said is is wrong. In fact, we have had very high Malay turnout in many elections, and Malay turnout remains. Uh, among among the highest, in part because there's a lot more competition, there's a lot more choices among the Malay parties, and there's a lot more mobilization uh, of the uh, by political parties of members of the Malay community. We also see that turnout levels increase compared to the state elections of Johor and Malacca, especially uh, among the non-Malay communities of the Indian and the Chinese. But of the three different communities in peninsula Malaysia, the actual lowest turnout was actually among the Chinese. And this is a, something that I think is quite striking uh, because Chinese turnout doesn't reach the 14 levels and it is noticeably lower than that of the other ethnic communities, which of course raises serious questions about where the Chinese community, uh, you know, the choices that the Chinese community feel uh, from a perspective of what's on offer. But then we also see uh, a third dimension as we see considerable regional variation across Malaysia. You know, Kelantan had very low turnout uh, right. because many of the voters that were Kelantanese didn't feel that there were many choices. And so we can see that uh, even among the Malay community, even among the Chinese community, we see in Kelantanese that they just didn't feel that they have they came to come back to the same degree they did before. And of course, we have lower turnout in Borneo, both in Sabah and Sarawak, mm-hmm. um, and this in part Part is because many of the them live outside and they can't afford to go back. You know, the obstacles of voting, uh, which I'm you know, reiterating the need for a decent postal voting system and a decent remote voting system. But also in the context of their large areas within Sabah and Sarawak, where people can't return back to their villages and to their homes. So this, uh, this of course, becomes a, an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, generally also, it's interesting to see that in Borneo, their connection to the national issues is a bit different than the state issues. But, but we do see that the turnout levels are not that much lower. But it also, I think, mostly comes down to the fact that the turnout is affected by the geography and, and economic issues that I, that I think these areas disproportionately have to face. And it's not a coincidence that Kelantan, S- Sabah, and Sarawak have among the highest levels of poverty in the country.
0: So, while there are regional differences, and I think you broke them down really well, um, overall, the Malay ter- voter turnout was relatively strong. Which brings me to my next question about the Chinese community, which is an interesting point you just brought up. Um, in your uh, series of articles, you wrote that uh, Pakatan Harapan's support among the Chinese has continued to strengthen from 91% in G 14 to 95% in G 15 But what stood out to me was this particular analysis of yours, and I quote, more Chinese are ex Visiting the political landscape, feeling a lack of ability to change the politics that is displacing their place in Malaysia, and of hurtful political narratives. What did you mean by this?
1: We can look at the brain drain, and the mm-hmm. brain drain crosses ethnic ethnicities, and I think this is something to understand, but, but it's disproportionately among higher among certain groups rather than others. And in the GE15 campaign, you had attacks um, that were targeted against the Chinese community, um, anti-Chinese rhetoric. And I think it's important to recognize that the, the rhetoric was on both sides, right? So there was also anti-Malay rhetoric as well. Absolutely. Um, but I would say that the anti-Chinese rhetoric has been going on for you know, since 2018, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually well before that, but I'm talking about in the contemporary context. Um, What we saw is that many Chinese were looking for uh, greater opportunities, greater equality, greater, you know, a sense of place in the system. And under Mahathir's government, the conversation was all about Malays. It All was right. about what he what he didn't have in terms of support as opposed to what he did have. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a test for Anwar's government is that to see whether or not the non-Malay community, which are the Pakatan Harapan's political base, without which Anwar would not be prime minister uh, from the perspective of uh, even having uh, m- a large sections of their seats, mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese community – are looking to see what what are what are the issues that are going to be given to that community in terms of sense of inclusion? Right. Here's a, a difficult quandary that Malaysia faces: is that on one side, you have you know this desire to move away from ethnic politics to move into a situation where people don't talk about Chinese, Indian, Malays, uh, you know, uh, or Bidayu or other communities. On the other hand, this is the reality of what people are experiencing, the way the state, the way the government officials respond to them. And each community has their own sets of issues and sets of cultural challenges that that are unique to themselves. And and ethnicity in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it helps to shape the way you engage communities. In fact, it's very much part and parcel of people's identity. That's what Malaysia's strength is, is Mm -hmm. the ethnic diversity. But the question becomes is, is how much do you actually engage and recognize that, for example, Chinese business communities, disproportionately SMEs, face particular sets of challenges um, and they have had to globalize their economy because they don't have access points here locally as a point of illustration. And so these types of issues that in terms of having a voice, having a seat at the table, being seen as meaningfully part of the country, which they are, but but the fact is, is the political process doesn't necessarily have that.
0: Bridget, a lot of times when talking about racial politics in Malaysia, the narrative um, is always the Malays versus non-Malays or the Malays versus Chinese. Um, You touched on that a little bit earlier as well. But what stood out to me about your analysis is that there isn't exactly a quote-unquote the Malays as a bloc in the sense that they are not a political monolith as well. Um, Talk to me about the voting patterns among the Malays.
1: So, you know, historians say, for example, like Sumit Mandal, one of my colleagues at mm-hmm. University of Nottingham, you know, he's written all about the variation in the Malay community and, and right. talks about that. So, I mean, we have so much scholarship that that acknowledges these differences, be it the genealogies, the issues associated with geography, even somebody like Zahid Hamidi, who is, you know, Javanese, mm-hmm. that context has a, a very different uh, kind of um, trajectory in terms of the, the composition. Right. But this is the part of the challenge, right? The political narrative is that it's the othering of other communities and therefore we are all the same in Mm -hmm. this process. And it's been not only a, a, a narrative, but it's been institutionalized in policy, right? Where certain people get, communities get benefits and others do not. But what we do see in the voting patterns is some of that variation that's very unique. If you're from Kelantan, you're very different than you are in terms of your outlook and your political socialization than say if you're from Johor. Right. But the po- voting patterns show that there are also political differences as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this is not new. This has been longstanding. If you're in Klantan, you know which family votes for PAS and which votes, family used to vote for UMNO right. uh, in that context. that it would divide families. Now what we see is that voting patterns are changing. But the narratives of trying to have the uh, you know, us versus them or them versus us it, are still quite significant. And what we can see is that, you know, this happened very much during the Najib government. When Najib's government was weak in 2015, you know, he began to try to work with PAS to try to galvanize kind of this idea of, of all the Malays together uh, and use that kind of uh, polarization. And then of course, subsequently, when Amno lost power and Najib lost government, mm-hmm. he was pushed out of power, we see this began to move into sort of political alliances. And at that time, the religious community kept talking about one (laughs) Ummah, one community, right? Right. Uh, And so, you know, the sources of this kind of Malay narrative uh, are complex and multiple. And I think it is very much served by institutional and political interests as opposed to the realities on the ground.
0: When you you did your... Preliminary analysis on um, the ethnic voting patterns and and how like the Malay community voted. You received a lot of flack um, even from um, some um, supporters of um, the current government and and so on and so forth because you pointed out that um does the, the Malay support um, towards Pakatan Harapan is is not as high as some members of uh, Harapan would like the the people to believe. Um, so you've done the detailed analysis now. You've gone through the granular data. Can you? Can you tell me uh, which parties the, the Malays voted for in, in terms of percentage?
1: So in my preliminary analysis, mm-hmm. I found uh, 11% for, had voted Pakatan Harapan. That right. was at the macro level. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've done the detail analysis, it doesn't move very much. It, uh, it moves to 13% from a national picture. So we're really essentially talking about the same. Uh, a, a very mi- a smaller minority voted for Pakatan Harapan among the Malay community. In the case of Pakatan National, they won 54 percent. And that was the original macro number. Mm-hmm. It turns out to be the micro number as well uh, in terms of that. But and if you'll see and you read in my article, there are regional variation to this. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it goes to UMNO in the peninsula of Malaysia. And this is the this is the analysis of the peninsula of Malaysia, because Malays are somewhat different in Saban Sarwak and what right. that means in that context. So. In the peninsula, what we see is a situation of a Pakatan Harapan minority, mm-hmm. a, P- a Perkata per- per- national majority, uh, and a 32% goes for UMDAL, right. uh, Barza national. So what we see is a division. Mm-hmm. But when we take, we step back from the bigger picture, from the perspective of Boeing Peninsula and Borneo, uh, and then we can see that that number of 54% moves down uh, to about 50% because Perkata per- national did not do well among Malays in Borneo because right. they did not contest in those areas. They contested only in two major seats and there were more, um, Abu, uh, non-Muslim bumiputras predominantly, although some Muslim bumiputras in Belarus, mm-hmm. what we saw is a situation where, um, the Malay vote there went to GPS it, it went, uh, in the case of Sarawak, and it went, it split among the different parties of war, uh, coalitions and parties, Waris on the party uh, at GRS, the coalition in the context of, of Sabah. So uh, we have essentially politically divided Malay community, and it's quite sharp.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia. After a break, we discuss how Indians shape the result of GE15. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welsh, Honorary Research Associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia and we're unpacking Dr. Bridget's seven-part series on Malaysia Kini, breaking down ethnic voting patterns in GE15. So Bridget, what would you attribute to the waning support among the Malays for Pakatan Harapan and also the growing support um, for the Islamist um, past and and Perikatan National. Um, Would you say that the electorate, they are unhappy with Harapan or are they genuinely attracted to past's ideologies, teachings and and policy ideas?
1: The data tells us some things to help us provide that answer. And I do have this in the article. So essentially, uh, half of the support that Perikatan National won Came from Prakat and Harapan, and half of it came from UMNO. So what we see is a number of factors, right? So first factor is is that uh, you know uh, that the UMNO collapse and the Zahid, you know, Mahamidi mismanagement of the GE15 campaign was very evident, right? Uh, in, in that context, and so we can see these numbers: a uh, uh, real significant loss of Malay support in places like Selangor, of course. Drastic change in, in support in places like Perlis. So this is that a lot of that comes from what happened in Umno. Now the interesting part is the eleven percent um, uh, that that was actually came from Pakatan Harapan. And here I speak. I, I reiterate the points that I made earlier about the creation of a of an ethno nationalist Malay na- narrative, <laughs> a kind of uh, the mobilization of this uh, around this narrative after two thousand eighteen. The you know the issues, the salience of this in the GE15 campaign, where people, you know, were the idea that the Chinese were the threat, that those Christians were the threat, these uh, the sense so capitalizing on displacement, uh, capitalizing on the other of communities and uh, as being a threat. These elements did have an impact in that area. I also would say that Anwar Ibrahim's power among the Malay communities and, it, and his influence was significantly lower than it was in the past, in part because, you know, keep in mind that Anwar Ibrahim suffered tremendous demonization for generations of voters right. uh, since 1999, 19, uh, 1998, 1999, uh, in that context. Uh, and so he was not in a stronger position compared to a Mahathir, for example, uh, who had that less of that, of the, although he has it now. But I would say that in that context these were some of the factors that were crucial and Part of it also had to do with Mahathir's government, where it was an austerity government. It did it actually the socioeconomic impact on the Malay community was very hard. And then, of course, subsequent to that, we saw COVID, and 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 so um, you know we can see these patterns, but we also have to look at why P N did well. And the arguments everybody wants to make is that it was a green wave, and I I always say that it was a limited green wave. Right. Yes, the factors that influenced PAS uh, are still. Are important and they're gaining ground. Conservativism, the issues of the social networks, the kind of idea of going from, you know, from from birth to death in terms of social connections, the way Pass has has successfully used its control at the state level, as well as at the national level, to use resources in places like Planta and and Kedah, which I think is really the big, Keda is one of the biggest stories in the election. Um, what I would say is that these factors are there and there is that we have to see some green, but the green is not as dark as people think it is. It's often driven by uh, socioeconomic conditions as opposed to just religion. And I think this perception that people vote on religious issues, I think, is Overexaggerated because of the way the narratives are, are operated, as opposed to the drivers of, of economic displacement and the concerns about economic realities and social realities that I think are there. So these things combine. The attitudes do matter. I'm not saying they don't, but I would say that they're they're also a combination of these other factors. Now. Also in the PN story mm-hmm. is the story of, uh, of Muyudanyasin, Yassin, what I right. call the Abba factor. You know, Bersatu did well in this election, and it wasn't just on passes, uh, you know, coattails or, or green tails. What we see is a situation where the idea of Muyudanyasin, Yassin, who came in as a Malay protector, uh, you know, to protect against Pakatan Harapan, right. which is perceived as this threat, or, or, or made into this narrative of this threat, was actually quite striking, and the, we could see this in this in the focus groups and the analysis uh, in the campaign and subsequently the data points to this and so there are these push factors and pull factors pushed away from the uh, places like Pakatan Harapan and and Amno and pull to the context of PN uh, and and keep in mind we're talking about a 20% uh, 21% gain in voter right. turnout which is quite a significant shift. Um, and some of that is younger people. But uh, in my analysis that will follow beyond in this, this next week, we'll find uh, there'll be some surprising revelations that the data shows that, it, that the PN did not do as well among young people as people think it did. Okay. But the fact is, is that um, I think it is a combination of these factors of push and pull that help us understand PN's success.
0: And I can't wait till your article on that uh, comes out so that I can interview you again. Um, But switching gears to talk about the Indian community, Bridget, uh, Indians are often forgotten when it comes to Malaysian political discourse, even the the sort of racialized, the racially charged discourse, the Malays versus the Chinese, you know, Indians are, even in that sense, uh, Indians are rarely factored in. Um, How did the Indian vote shape the results of GE15?
1: I started with the Indian community as the first community I spoke about, and this was intentional because I think what we can see is that there's not an acknowledgement that they are important. And what we did see is that they were critical in many seats uh, because of the closeness of many races. And also, the fact is is that the swing among the Indian community compared to Malacca and Johor was very significant. Mm-hmm. So they move from you know being forty eight percent supporting them in Johor to uh, of supporting Pakatan Harapan to eighty three percent. But we're talking about this hidden but massive swing among the Indian community, um, and you know they matter in a lot of seats, and uh, we can uh, just debate the numbers. But I, I focused on those where they are over ten yep. percent uh, in that area, and to and to look at how that would have affected the outcome and we saw that uh the that 83 percent and reasonable turnout that they were second in terms of the overall turnout levels of the three major communities in peninsula malaysia really made an important impact um a, a good example is that is the seat of kuala Slangor, where indian turnout and indian support was very important for sukofi Ahmad, for example in that um dr Zul in that seat mm-hmm. so what we see is a situation where Um, You know, the Indian community matters. And they keep looking, you know, for uh, support, for access, for representation over a long period of time. I mean, that's why, for example, uh, they were very strong supporters of Najib. And Najib not being part of the political process in Hamno and BN, you can see a big difference among Indian voters. They're looking for new um, new avenues to have some of the issues of the community being addressed um, and uh, engaging uh, in, in, in through different types of avenues. And this is what's interesting about Malaysia is that there's, you know, the data shows that there's lots of ethnic swings and that people are moving and changing and switching their loyalties now. You know, the time where everyone voted and there were safe deposits, uh, nothing's safe anymore. Right? Uh, right. Uh, and the deposits, uh, you have to be careful how you manage your deposits as well. Right. <laughs> so what we see is a situation where, you know, it, it is a very fluid process. And as I've indicated, the Indian community Really, um, you know, you have to ask the questions not just what they did in terms of voting, but why they did it. And I think that um, you know what it uh, speaks to is the fact that the Indian community uh, are vested uh, tremendously in having a stronger representation. They want uh, a more inclusive governance, but they also want governance that addresses some of the concerns of the Indian community, which yet have yet to been uh, really galvanized. Um, you know, you don't you have a talk of a blueprint, for example. In slang, or and that has, uh, you know, only been not modestly discussed, as mm-hmm. opposed to implemented, is right. It?
0: I'm also very curious and very intrigued, Bridget, by the stark regional differences in voting patterns that you point out among the Indian electorate, right? Because there are regional differences across all ethnicities, but it was very interesting to me how in Pahang, like you, you mentioned, Datu Sri uh, Najib, earlier. Um, Najib hails from uh, Pahang. Um, his pekan is in in Pahang. Um, the, you said that uh, in there was still some decent support towards uh, Barisan National among the Indian community in Pahang compared to, let's say, the Indian community in Selangor, which did not support any other, you know, except for Pakatan Harpan. So could you share why um, there is this stark regional differences, especially among the Indians?
1: So, first part of that is a statistical issue, right? right. So, in the some of the areas where there's are smaller numbers, percentages become right. higher, right? So, therefore, if we have smaller numbers in a place like Tranganu, for example, then mm-hmm. the statistics will indicate with the the percentage the percentage might be higher, but right. actually speaking about a smaller group of people, right? Mm-hmm. All right, but at the same time, some of it has to do with the regional dynamics. So, MIC support has always been focused on certain sets of seats, right? right. And they have also had uh, a, a base. Base of support only in certain areas, they're not, they've been never really a national party. They've been focused on trying to win exit of key seats. Um, and, uh, you know, you have different patterns of engagement within certain states. And I, I highlighted, a, you know, earlier, the Najee factor as being important. But you can look at, um, you know, look at some of this the areas where uh, MIC traditionally has done very well historically. And what we see is the patterns change. In fact, actually, One of the stories of this election that the data shows is that, uh, you know, that this is really a a repudiation of MIC uh, um, uh, compared to the past. Uh, And of course, the previous election that that happened was in 2008 for the Indian community Mm -hmm. and what we can see that. So the variation is driven by um, local networks, but, you know, patterns of contestations where the party has sets of party machinery, as well as the kind of different dynamics at the different levels. And I would say that the differences are significant, but what to me is the bigger significance is the issue of the overall pattern of not sticking with the BN anymore.
0: Now, switching gears to talk about um, East Malaysia, um, Sabah, Bridget, is, uh, is very interesting to look at um, because in GE15, um, Barisan National won seven seats in Sabah, five went to Peri- uh, Pakatan Harapan, one only to Perikatan National, and then six uh, went to Warisan and, and other smaller parties as well. What does this tell you? Because it seems very fragmented to me. Are Sabahans polarised across ethnic lines as well?
1: So, if you'll notice that I do a different type of ethnic analysis in Borneo, both in Sabah and Sarawak to reflect the communities there, there's, you know, we're talking uh, of Tremendous variation, right. you know. Uh, if I have, I have a list of communities in the context of S- Sabah, the electoral, roll, and they're just, you know, the list goes <laughs> on for over 100 and 150 different communities. Right. So you have to you have to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Now, to answer your question about polarization, we do see a parallel to the peninsula, and that the Chinese electorate, both in Sabah and Sarawak, is is organized and is co- cohesively more cohesively behind Pakistan and So we do have this kind of Chinese pole that still exists, but the rest of the communities are much more fragmented and divided. Uh, but, uh, and so Saba has its own kind of Unique ethnic polarization, and that has to do with the region between west and east, uh, you know, in Borneo, in mm-hmm. Sabah itself. And so, what we see that Warasan does much better along the east coast, uh, where there are a lot higher numbers of Bajau, Bajau Ubian, Suluk's, which are traditionally many have been settled in those areas, right. uh, and of course that is the background um, where Shafi Abdal has, you know, has mobilized. That uh, ethnicity, since particularly among 2018, mm-hmm. um, but it is also from the perspective of the west coast of uh, of of Sabah, uh, where you have higher concentrations of the Karasanduso and Murut communities. although the Muruk communities are further in, a little bit further in the south, while well, there are also some also in the north. So it's along the west coast. What we also see is a situation where the dynamic is such that that they have. Felt that they've been displaced right, <laughs> by right. the migration uh, and by you know the project IC and the displacement. And so what we saw in the 2000- ge 2015 results is that the KDM vote, which was not as has not support um, Warasan to the same degree uh, in 2018 and, and left uh, the uh, Warisan in 2020, um, it actually came back to Pakatan Harapan. Uh, when you know, Pakatan Harapan wasn't working with Warasan. So why am I telling you this? That you have regional polarization, regional relationships, uh, and Sabah has its own history, which of course has to do with a tremendous number of statelessness that it, uh, and also the migration issues and the changing demographics in Sabah and the sense of place and displacement that Sabahans feel with among themselves. And that comes out in the ethnic voting patterns where there has been these shifts.
0: And... Finally, I want to ask you about Sarawak as well because, you know, people tend to have this idea that, oh, you know, in Sarawak is just a GPS's fortress, they, nobody can touch them, they just dominate and, and so on and so forth. And when you just look at the seats, um, it seems to reflect that, that sort of sentiment, right? But in your article, you wrote something interesting and you said, and I quote, GPS did well, um, Premier Abang Johari Openg's coalition won the most seats in Sarawak, 23 out of 31. What is not appreciated is the gains by others, end quote. And I think this is an important observation, Bridget, because oftentimes, you know, people just look at the seats and claim that one party is dominating. But tell me, what are people missing about Sarawak? What does the gains made by other parties tell you about shifting dynamics in the region?
1: This big issue of dynamism, of multiple swings, uh, of a change in party loyalties, of a kind of dynamic democratic competitive process that Malaysia is experiencing—it happens not only in Peninsular Malaysia, but it's happening both in Sabah and Sarawak. You know, this perception in the Sarawak is things that are boring. You know, things are <laughs> they're not changing. You know, uh, and and you know, I I couldn't disagree more um, with um, you know. To me, I spent a fair amount of time during GE fifteen in Sarawak. They have 31 seats after all, you know, one has to look carefully uh, and assess and go to the ground. There's a lot of more confidence. There's a lot more, there's a lot of different regional vari- different regional dynamics, but also different dynamics within the communities. And so in looking at, at both Sabah and Sarawak, I, I included the state elections because I think the state elections give us a sense of how the issues change. And while state elections have their own dynamics, they also tell us about voting patterns. And we saw, you know, two swinging groups in in Sarawak. One were, of course, the Chinese. Uh, Yes, still lower turnout, but they came back to Pakatan Harapan after brutally punishing them. And especially DAP Sarawak in 2021. Keep in mind that that election, you know, over 20 percent went to the other parties. Right. So the Chinese left uh, and all the communities left uh, uh, the Pakatan Harapan, but the Chinese in particular. And they also didn't turn out. They had a slight voter turnout uh, increase but they also, they moved back to Pakatan Harapan. And right. that's what we saw, very close races, of the winning of Miri, the winning of uh, uh, of Cebu, uh, you know, uh, these seats uh, uh, um, and uh, were, were crucial. And then the other group that is the interesting are the Badayus. And the Badayu are concentrated um, in the southern part of Sarawak along the west coast. Uh, and th- what, ha- what we see is, you know, um, this community have been changing and, and voting very differently differently. differently in 2018. um, And they also voted, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, they swung back and they helped to contribute to, for example, the victory in Moscating, uh, which if if the patterns of of 2021 had continued, there would be a loss there. So what we saw is that these, these two swinging groups... And then also uh, the data shows that the Iban uh, community, uh, which are you know very large in number in Sarawak, although they have been politically displaced in terms of their seat composition, also have low support for GPS. Um, and and I think there are a lot of issues going on in terms of political representat- representation, division among the different diet leaders, um, and, and so we see, for example, PN wanted a seat in, in uh, Saratok, and and uh, and uh, Larry Sung won a seat in Julau. And- all of these are uh, tied into the kind of the shifting patterns within the iban and people talk about the issue of diasporism and dio- and dio- identity and a sense of displacement and this goes back to the point i was raising earlier is that each particular communities in the country have their own narratives vis-a-vis the other communities in places such as Sarawak. And Abang Jo, the premier, w- what he did is was trying to bring to be a coalition, to have representation of all of that. And right. what we saw is that the the swings actually uh, were quite interesting, and not everyone were completely happy with GPS. And, and the numbers show this uh, not only the overall popular vote, but also uh, you know these particular dynamics between different types of elections. And again, I reiterate is that, you know, this perceptions, the myth, right? The the kind of, uh, unfortunately, I would say patronizing myth that people in Peninsula have is that, you know, these are native communities that they're bought off and others, they don't give a sense of agency, a sense of dynamism, a sense of important respect to the Sarawakians who after all, you know, without the Sarawakians, there would be no Anwar Ibrahim government.
0: And before we wrap this conversation up, Bridget, um, while you were doing this series, um, what stood out to you about where we are today and where do we go from here as an ethnically divided nation?
1: I think there are three major things I'd highlight. Mm-hmm. First of all, ethnic politics still is the dominant narrative. It's easy, right? There is this tendency and in, in kind of pattern of wanting to use ethnic politics to galvanize political base. It reflects a lack of maturity among politicians because it's a, they want to use these particular issues of divide and rule for their own political purposes rather than reflecting and having a more policy-oriented narrative. So I think one is a reflection of the realities uh, of the way that the, the leadership is, is operating. You know, my hope has always been and my hope continues to be that, that there will be new narratives that will help to, to buffer some of that. The second issue is that these divisions are getting worse mm-hmm. politically as opposed to getting better. And this calls for a real meaningful need to address and look at policies that not only address the concerns of all the communities in terms of division, but talk about having a conversation among each other. And this has to do with changing the education system, changing socialization, having meaningful conversations about interethnic harmony and respect and tolerance. And this is very difficult from a perspective of the fact that the division is being used, uh, especially by this generation of leaders, uh, to for political aims. The third thing is, is that while ethnicity is pronounced, huh, mm-hmm. there is a lot of dynamism and shifts. Right. And... You know, Malaysian politics is extremely exciting. I know many of your listeners would be negative about, you know, the perceptions, the polarizations. And and there's reasons to be negative about those things. But the fact is, is that everybody's swinging. <laughs> Everybody's moving, right? Uh, and that means the politicians have to start to be more engaging across uh, the diverse nation of Malaysia. Right. And that there is power among the communities and among voters. And that in itself, uh, I think, shows a lot of promise.
0: Bridget, thank you so much for joining me today. Most welcome. That was Dr. Bridget Welch, honorary research associate at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, do check us out on podcasts. You can find us on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.